Well, we're continuing our Easter series. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. That is the day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and that's what we're going to be reading this morning. I do, do want to just remind you that we do have Easter services next weekend, Good Friday, 8.30 and 10, Sunday, 8.30 and 10, just like normal, just so none of us, including people up here, don't get confused. We, we want to keep it simple. Uh, so that's what's happening. Good Friday and uh, Easter Sunday, we'd love to see you there to celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. So Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, and I'm starting at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Jono. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, really great to be with you here this morning. Um, I'm excited. I'm also a little bit nervous, or a lot nervous. Uh, one of the girls from our youth group uh, just saw me before loitering in the foyer being all nervous, and she said, Ben, you just need to calm down, because if you can handle a room of teenagers on a Friday night, preaching will be a cinch. Um, so I feel a lot calmer now. Um, so last week, Jono led us through some passages from Luke 18, which left us with no doubt that Jesus is the kind of king that we want to follow. He's the king who calls us to be like the tax collector, who cries out, uh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, he's the king who doesn't want us to be doubtful and overcomplicate our faith, but rather calls us to be like little children. The king who knows we are like a hopeless blind man and yet freely offers us hope. The king who willingly moves towards the cross for our salvation. Jesus had the character of the king, character of a king worthy of being followed. But just because he had the character of a good king doesn't mean 
he was necessarily the right king at that moment. Now, as Christians, we know he is the right king. It's written out for us. We know Jesus is the king because of what he did for us on the cross. Not only that, but we know Jesus is the right king because we have an understanding of the New Testament, the inspired word of God, which encourages us in truth to believe and know Jesus as king. We have, for instance, uh, Ephesians 1 and Hebrews 1, which tell us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, inferring that his, uh, he has kingship with God. We have 1 Timothy 6, which labels Jesus as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We have Revelation 1, which tells us that Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. And in chapter 17 of Revelation, uh, the Lamb is labeled as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And of course, we have the Holy Spirit with us, uh, uh, who attest to all of the truth of these scriptures. So from our perspective, we know what his kingship actually meant, what it means, and what it will continue to mean. But our passage today is interesting because it presents to us a group of disciples who uh, were given King Jesus on a donkey without an understanding of what his kingship would actually mean. They didn't have the benefit of knowing how the story ends, even though Jesus does tell them a few times. Jesus tells them he would have to die, but they didn't believe it, and they couldn't. And they wouldn't actually see that he was the right king for them to serve until they crucified him, and he rose again. So last week we asked if you would follow the king. This week we're going to ask whether you're following the right king, the right Jesus. There are lots of kings to follow on this earth, some of which are named Jesus, And today we answer whether you've got the right Jesus, whether you've got the right king. And we're going to start off answering that question by looking at the relatively large chunk of text at the start of the passage uh, that discusses how Jesus obtains the donkey. Uh, It's an easy section of text to ignore as seemingly unimportant uh, because Jesus just tells his disciples to go and get the donkey and they just go and get it. Done. Like, easy, right? But given that Luke spends quite a large uh, portion of time explaining uh, how they do it, I think it's worth investigating a little bit further. So I'm just going to reread that section of text once again. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the cult, its owners asked them, as expected, why are you untying the cult? They replied, the Lord needs it. My first thought was that this seems a little bit too easy. Luke doesn't record any argument between the disciples and the owner of the donkey. They just seem to take it, right? Even though a donkey was a valuable asset at the time. My immediate second thought is that I should try this at a BMW dealership and see how it goes down. Don't worry, fellas, the Lord needs it. Skirt. I regret saying that. In all seriousness, though, I want to focus in on the phrase, the Lord needs it. Does the Lord really need anything? 
Does the king need anything from us as his servants or the disciples as his servants? Why would Jesus command them to use that phrase? Surely Jesus, in all of his power, could just summon the donkey like an Uber or like a Tesla. Any other earthly king could have a field of thousands of donkeys that they could use whenever they felt like it. And Jesus is powerful enough to not need our help. He could have absolutely obtained that donkey very simply. It could, might not have even needed to be part of the story, and yet it is part of the story. We're talking about a king here who could heal people by just saying the word, and we're given this little chunk of text about a donkey. Back in Luke 7, Jesus is asked by a centurion to heal his servant who is sick. The centurion sends a messenger to Jesus while he's on his way to the centurion's house. And he says, Jesus, don't bother yourself walking all the way to my house to heal this servant. You can just say the word and he'll be healed. So sure enough, Jesus says the word and he's healed. So we're talking about King Jesus here who can heal someone by just saying a word. And here we are in our story and he gives us this whole little story about a donkey, how they get him a donkey. It's a similar situation when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Manna could have poured down from heaven, and it wouldn't be the first time it happened in the Bible, and fish could have jumped out of the ocean at the sound of his voice, yet he wastes time instructing the disciples to help him along the way. It seems unnecessary. No other king would waste their time working alongside their servants. It seems to me that the only reason Jesus would do this is because he's a king that has such a heart for his servants, that he wants to work with them. He wants us to be involved in his will and in his plans, even if they're simple or boring, like getting a donkey. He doesn't just bypass us as a means to an end. He waits patiently for us as we serve in our human capacity and as we walk in faith alongside him. And if we want to involve ourselves in his plans, we see in this little story that we have to have some faith. The disciples acted in faith by believing that they would uh, find this donkey in the middle of nowhere, which would be released by its owner simply because of the phrase, the Lord needs it. The owner doesn't, uh, there was no other excuse, no other detail about how this would happen. The disciples must have thought uh, the owner of the donkey was just going to say, yeah, right, bugger off. Um, Or they're going to have a problem of some description with their request. Yet when the disciples simply obey in faith, and obey this small command, they end up with the donkey as Jesus said it would happen. And the owner of the donkey must have been acting in similar faith. He hands over this valuable asset just because the Lord needs it. He doesn't question what it will be used for, how many miles it will do, whether it will be fed or watered. Uh, All the owner of the donkey knows is that the Lord needs it. And that's, that's strong faith. It leads me to wonder how many moments in life we have where the Holy Spirit lays God's plans on our hearts, and it's as if he says to us, the Lord needs it. But we think, yeah, nah, not really enough detail for me. Or surely there's someone else who will do it better than me, a bit of Moses syndrome. Or why would the Lord want that from me? Or that does not sound like a great use of my time. Can't you just do it, Jesus? Just click your fingers, make it happen. The Lord places in front of you that he needs you to consider supporting a missionary financially and you say, but what about my dream holiday that I've been saving for? 
Or the Lord opens your eyes to see he needs you to open your home to someone who needs a roof over their heads. And you say, but God, they're a stranger. They're going to eat all of my food. The Lord reveals within our congregation a brother or sister who needs spiritual guidance and mentoring. And you say, yeah, I'd really love to, but work has just been so busy and my golf game is phenomenal at the moment. You see, each time when it appears the Holy Spirit calls out to you and says the Lord needs something, you're actually receiving an opportunity to walk alongside the King. Jesus is giving you an opportunity to be part of his kingdom plans. And we know that he doesn't need you to be part of those plans. If we're not willing to participate in his plans, he will get the job done without us. But as disciples of Christ, we should want to work alongside him at any chance we get. And he is a king that loves it when we are willing to walk alongside him. And how do we have the boldness to be willing uh, for God to use us when he needs us? Well, we have to just be willing to believe with childlike faith that he is a powerful king who has a heart for using you for his purposes. And most of our ignorance and inaction rests on this. Do you actually believe that Jesus can get what he needs through you? Do you actually believe that Jesus has a heart for asking you to walk with him in service of his kingdom? Are you humble enough to serve the king who sometimes needs something unglamorous like a donkey and ask us to work alongside him to get it? Serving Jesus is a matter of seeing that he's a king who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, is powerful enough to not need us, and yet has a heart for working alongside us, his beloved servants, even though we are flawed. And no other king would operate like this. No other king would be as worthy to be served as he is. And this is what makes Jesus the right king for us to walk alongside. This is how we know we're serving the right king because of this part of his character. And I know I spent a lot of time talking about the donkey, but before moving on, I just want to discuss why Jesus, as the supposed king, rides on the donkey. The Gospel of Matthew confirms that Jesus rides on the donkey to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, which says, uh, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus riding on the donkey was to signify to the people that he was the right king, the right king who was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And assuming that the crowds and disciples knew their Old Testament prophecies, seeing Jesus on the donkey would have triggered them to think, we got the right king here. This is our guy. He's the king. He's a king of some description, at least. And we know that they thought this because our text says that their response to Jesus on the donkey was to rejoice, which is part of the command in the prophecy. They threw their cloaks on the ground as a serious sign of respect. They praised God loudly by quoting Psalm 118.26, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They literally identify him as their king. They knew that his role would be king of some description. But if we dig deeper into the heart of their praise, I'm not sure that they had the right king. 
Interestingly, the passage tells us that the reason why they praised God was because of all of the miracles that they had seen. So their praise results from a combination of Jesus being a king of some description, and they're not really sure at this point what kind of king he would be, and uh, the fact that they had seen him do miracles. Now, I'm not saying this is wrong, but it's interesting to note that they didn't quote uh, a scripture like Isaiah 53 in their worship of him. The Bible doesn't say, and they began to joyfully praise God uh, in loud voices saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. They didn't praise him for that. It doesn't say that that's what they said. It says they praised him for the miracles he'd done, which is not a bad thing to praise Jesus for, but it sort of misses the mark in the moment. Jesus' intention as he rode into Jerusalem as king on a donkey was to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy that he was the king, yes, but it was also a step closer to fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. He was submitting to God's will that he be crushed for our iniquities. This is the true reason why Jesus deserved the utmost praise during the triumphal entry. So even though they were giving God praise, uh, God the praise drew his name, their praise was not with full understanding and not with full anticipation of his true plan. It missed the mark because the truth was hidden from their hearts. And we know this because in the book of Luke, Jesus predicts his death three times. And the third time Jesus predicts his death, in chapter 18, the text tells us that the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. And I just want to take a quick detour to note that there is never a moment that Jesus doesn't deserve praise. I want to make that clear. It's not what I'm saying. The praise at the triumphal entry was not inappropriate or misdirected. This is especially true because Jesus said that if they had kept quiet, even the stones would cry out. In other words, if not a single person responded to Jesus in praise at the triumphal entry, then something, even an inanimate object, would literally have to break out in praise. And Jesus' mention of the rocks crying out reminds me of Psalm 96, 11 to 12, which says, Let the heavens rejoice... Let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. It's a reminder that God's goodness is so worthy of praise that something, literally anything in all of creation, must burst forth in praise as a result of his goodness. And God's goodness in his plan to send his son towards the cross on the donkey is an example of something so praiseworthy that something as simple and plain and boring and assumingly incapable of worship as the rocks would have to cry out because of it. This is why Jesus doesn't stop the worship at the triumphal entry when the Pharisees rebuke him. Jesus knows that their hearts don't know what he's about to do, but there must be praise where praise is due. And there was obviously something so incredibly special about what was happening at the triumphal entry that praise had to be given to Jesus at that moment. 
But just because the praise was not inappropriate or misdirected in the circumstances doesn't mean it was with the right intention or expectation. When Jesus rode that donkey down the Mount of Olives, a huge step was being taken towards the redemption of Israel, but it wasn't what the crowds and disciples were expecting. They thought that their biggest problem was that the Romans were in control of Jerusalem, and so their praise was very likely directed towards him in the hope that Jesus would do something about it. Their hope was that his next miracle would be to cast Rome out from Jerusalem and physically rule as king of the Jews. Their hope that he was the right king for their job. Their hope was that he was the right king for their gospel. But Jesus would turn out to be the exact opposite kind of king of that, who peacefully and humbly submitted to the hands of Rome to be utterly destroyed by crucifixion. And after they welcome Jesus to Jerusalem and he does nothing towards their emancipation from Rome, they lose interest in him as their right king. And unfortunately, and ironically, once they've lost interest, they turn to the Romans, the very people who they're trying to escape from and be rescued from, uh, to deal with Jesus as a criminal. They go from praising, uh, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him. Why? Because the king they had in mind was not the king that Jesus was. So the question becomes... Do you ever, God, give the glory due his name? Do you ever give the king the glory due his name, but with expectations that aren't aligned with his character or his will? Have you ever come to worship on a Sunday morning with the expectation that uh, you might receive something if you just sing louder than the person next to you? Or maybe subconsciously you just sort of believe that your circumstances might improve a little bit if you listen to worship music on the way to work. Or maybe in worship of God, you serve on a particular ministry, uh, but only in the hope that you find a husband or a wife. Don't get me wrong. Like I said before, never a bad thing to worship. God always deserves praise. But your joy in praising him and your longevity in serving him will dwindle if you have expectations of him that he never promises. It's all too common to see this happening on social media uh, under the phrase deconstructing. And it's interesting when most people talk about their deconstruction that they begin with the idea of praise. Uh, they're usually worship leaders or they're there every Sunday worshipping and, and they love it, um, but then they lose their faith. They claim that they praise God in church on a Sunday, but then their sickness was never healed. They claim they praised Jesus in worship because he said some really cool things about love, but then when it came to their sin, they couldn't handle being called out for it. They claimed they praised God with the full experience of the Holy Spirit on Sunday, but their suffering outside of church just, just felt a little bit unfair. The thing is, they probably thought they were following the right king, they certainly were using the word king in their worship of him. They certainly used the word Jesus as their worship, in their worship of him. But the king they served was a made-up version of the right king. Their king was worthy of praise only up until the point that he didn't give them exactly what they wanted, which is exactly what happens to Jesus in his last days on earth. 
So how do you approach the king on the donkey? Do you lay down your coat before him and shout, uh, blessed is the king who's going to fix all of my problems? Blessed is the king who put that work colleague I don't like very much in a different department? Blessed is the king who gave me some more money? Blessed is the king who uh, helped me get ripped at the gym? Honestly, if you approach the king on the donkey with an expectation that all your problems will be solved, you fail to see that your biggest problem is sin. And the crowds that followed Jesus were the same. They thought their biggest problem was Rome, and yet the reason that Jesus rode on the donkey is because he knew that their biggest problem was actually sin. And thank goodness that Jesus could see that need when they couldn't. Because if Jesus did wage war against Jerusalem and he reigned as king until he died, would that have achieved anything? So he comes to earth and he does some really cool miracles and he says some wise things and then he uh, destroys Rome and goes to Jerusalem and sits on the throne and then he dies and doesn't rise again. Would that have achieved anything? No. It would be a short-sighted and limited joy and yet this is what the people really wanted. In the same way, if Jesus was our uh, magic little genie fairy who gave us everything we wanted up until our final breath, would that achieve anything? Would that make us happy? Would that satisfy our soul? Would that present us blameless before the God who created us to be in a relationship with him? No. This is why Jesus laments in the next part of the passage, if only they knew what would bring them peace. Jesus knows what we need. This is what makes him the only right king for us. And this is also what makes him so worthy of praise. Don't let your praise be conditional on having enough money or having a perfect marriage or finding the perfect job. Let your praise flow from knowing that your king was the right king who rode on a donkey towards a cross for what you needed most when you couldn't see it. If you praise any other king with your life, with uh, what you do with your life, if you praise any other king who doesn't offer their blood for your sins, you're going to be disappointed. And as I wrap up, we're going to move into the last part of our text where we read something which is a little bit uh, on face value uh, out of place. Jesus is being praised with quite a great deal of passion, palm branches, throwing of cloaks, uh, quoting of scripture, shouting, and yet we read in the text that he wept over the city of Jerusalem. He says, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Why does Jesus weep? He weeps because they do not know what would bring them peace. He weeps because, as the book of Acts so aptly describes, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. 
He weeps because they knew God's word and prophecies from the ages before, yet they couldn't see who he was. He weeps because they were so distracted by what happened to the physical city of Jerusalem that they missed God's coming to them in the form of Jesus Christ. He weeps because their hopes in Jerusalem being restored are actually going to be crushed when Jerusalem is dashed to pieces and not one stone is left on another by their enemies. He weeps because they did not see that their greatest need was not the bricks and stones of Jerusalem, not the physical buildings, but salvation from sin. He weeps because he will have to suffer greatly for their eyes to be opened. He weeps because, overall, his heart for the people he came to save, his love for the people that he came to save. His weeping shows that he is the right king for us to serve. Only a true and right king would lovingly weep over a people who didn't see who he was and whose love for him was conditional on the destruction of Rome, was conditional on them doing what they wanted him to do. Only a right and true king would look at those people and lovingly continue towards a cross despite their ignorance to sin. He is the right king because his love for us is not conditional. So we asked at the start of the message if Jesus was the right king, if you were serving the right king. And the triumphal entry shows us enough about Jesus' heart to work out whether we are following the right king. So are you? Are you serving the right king? Are you serving the right Jesus? Don't be fooled by the kings who promise treasures on earth or promise that if you just do enough, you'll find favor with God. Those kings also sometimes carry the name of Jesus. They're just not the right Jesus. They're just not the right king. The king who does what you want and all of your earthly desires is not the right king. It's not the right Jesus. The only right king for you is the one who humbled himself on a donkey and rode it in love towards the cross so that even while you were blind, even while you couldn't see what you needed, even while you were dead in your sin, you could be made alive and be brought into a relationship with him. 